Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Apostles. We're so grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning. Our heart always when we gather together is that we would be about making much of our Lord. And so to that end, we want to go to his word and read from Isaiah this morning. And this will be the, uh, the passage that JP will be teaching on. And so my hope would be is that we would have some time to reflect and meditate on these words in preparation for that teaching. This is Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk in. Good morning. Uh, Before we begin, let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer to to start our time here together in God's word. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you uh, that you've inspired it, that you've preserved it. We thank you that you promise uh, your spirit to come and to enlighten our hearts and our minds. And we, we ask that this morning that you would be here to show us and, and to teach us and to guide us. We pray that you would move freely in this place, that you would uh, 
open our eyes to see and our ears to hear your word and that uh, you would apply it to our hearts, that you would show us uh, those areas where we're, we're not following you or we're not seeing it correctly. And we just ask that uh, you would be here and you would do that this morning, that uh, all that was that is said and done here would be in accord with your word and pleasing to you. And most of all, that we would glorify your name in our time together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to think just for a second about the idea of perspective, a big idea, just maybe perspective in general, but our own perspective. When I think of the idea of of perspective, I think of taking drawing classes in college where I had to learn how to do two and three point perspectives. And and what you would learn is things in the in the foreground have to be bigger than things in the background because they're closer to you. And so they, they look bigger even if they're not. For example, if I, if I take my thumb and I hold it in front of my eye, I can block out the door in the back of the room. And so from my perspective, it looks as if my thumb is bigger than the back door. Or if I, if I walk over here, I can look outside at the huge tree and I can do the same thing. And suddenly my thumb is bigger than the tree. So from my perspective, I look at, well, my thumb looks like it's bigger than that tree. Well, Everyone else sitting here, if I'm standing here doing that, you can look and go, that's not the case. But sometimes from our own perspective, we let things crowd in on us and they get right in front of us and right in front of our face. And it distorts our perspective. And so as we go back into our series this week, as we're looking at the big idea of scripture and how God's moving and the promises and what he's doing. But a big reason we've been saying we're doing that and looking at the big picture of scripture and looking at the overview is it gives us a better perspective. The farther we pull back, the more we see how God's moving and how he's working. And it gives us a better perspective on things. And what we see in our own lives, just with the things that surround us and what's going on in our own lives, there's things that can distort our perspective, just like we've seen in Scripture, just like we've seen the last few weeks. If you were with us last week, we're up to the point in Scripture where Solomon was king and we're coming up onto the end. We were looking at uh, uh, the very last years of Solomon's life and how he started to fall off. And, And you could say his perspective became distorted. He had taken all these wives and he'd let their idols And their things come in and start to crowd out where God's supposed to be. And the perspective got off. And so what you saw is Solomon starting to kind of fall off into some things that he shouldn't have been involved in because his perspective has become distorted. He's let other things crowd in and distort the way reality is. And so we we saw that last week. But if you've been with us as we've been walking through scripture all the way through, we've seen this problem over and over and goes all the way back to the very beginning with with Adam and Eve and them not trusting God and what he tells them. And then their, their perspective becomes distorted. We could say the same thing with the people following Joshua. He gave them very specific things that they're supposed to do and the way that they're supposed to take the land. And they kind of got off on that. We see it very clearly in the book of Judges is they're uh, following after all these other things in the land and letting those things be the, but what's right in front of them and in their face. And we've seen that all the way through. We even saw it uh, at times with David. We certainly saw it with Saul and we saw it with Solomon. And so as we're walking through scripture all the way through this unfolding of this picture, we see this over and over that we let other things come into our life that, that are pressing, that are right in front of us and they start to distort our perspective and it leads to all kinds of problems. You know, last week when we were talking about Solomon, we were in the period that we call uh, when we're looking at big, big idea in scripture, we call it the United Kingdom. Israel is united under one king for a certain amount of time. It's about 120 years. 
And it's Saul and David and Solomon, four or three kings in a row, and they're all united. But then, because of Solomon and the way he gets off and the way he, he invites other idols and other things into his life, he really starts to tear the kingdom apart. His unfaithfulness, his distorted perspective has great consequences on Israel. And so what you see is Solomon's uh, reign is winding down. We, we move into a period known as the divided kingdom. Because what happens is because Solomon is not faithful, God says, I'm going to rip part of the kingdom from you and I'm, not, I'm going to give part of it to your son because I promised that I was going to keep you on the throne, but I'm going to take part of it. And so what happens is it divides. It divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so for the next couple hundred years, they, they go along and they, to be honest, they limp along. What happens is there's 19 kings in the north and there's 19 kings in the south. And what scripture tells us is about, about five of them, a handful of them follow after God and the rest are terrible. And so you divide the kingdom. We go from Israel at its height. Solomon is known all over the world and all these great things. And Israel is the greatest nation and all this stuff to because of their unfaithfulness, it gets ripped in two. And then it's just a mess and it's awful. And it goes through all these cycles and all these kings that don't follow after God and all this stuff happens. And that starts to unfold for us in the second half of first Kings and into second Kings and part of Chronicles. And we see that. And now during that time, what we get, though, is a lot of scripture written during that time. And what we get is what we call the prophetic books. The prophets come during that divided kingdom and what they do is God sends them into this time when when Israel is a mess and the kings are not following God and he gives them a word from the Lord and he says you go and you tell them these things and you tell them to repent and you tell them to turn back and you tell them what's going to happen if they don't. And, And so the prophets come and it's a very hard job in a lot of ways when you read through the prophets when you when you read through Isaiah or specifically when you when you read through Jeremiah in the that he goes and he proclaims God's word and he stands up in the midst of this generation that's all messed up and they don't listen to him and they just keep going their way but God keeps faithfully bringing prophets in and he's as he does they keep uh, talking about God's word and pointing people back he, they tell God gives them prophecies of what's going to happen and so as we move into this period, instead of sitting still in First uh, Kings and Second Kings and looking at all the kings that are going on, we're actually going to look in the book of Isaiah this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, which Chris just read uh, most of it for us just a minute ago. And that's where we're going to be. But, but I want us to see the context of what's going on. We're still, uh, we're about uh, roughly 200 years after Solomon when Isaiah comes. And so this divided kingdom has been divided and it's well established now and it's a mess. And Isaiah comes in and he gives us this prophecy and he speaks into this and he tells what's happening. And and, and the way the prophets, one thing you just need to know as we step into Isaiah 40 is, is the way a lot of the times the prophets speak is they're talking to an audience. They're talking to Israel at that time. that's in a divided kingdom. But then they're telling what's going to happen. And then a lot of times they're telling what God's going to do even after that. So a lot of times they'll be saying, hey, in a little while this is going to happen, but then even later God's going to bring you back and do this. And so they're working on so many levels. We see when Isaiah speaks, he's talking about an immediate audience, but the future and what will even happen further down the road. But, but what I want us to think about before we even look at this passage together is the context that Isaiah is speaking into is not all that different than the one we live in today, where we've, we've gotten way off from who God is and following him and 
we're, we're all over the place. And so what happens is our perspective gets so distorted by what's going on around us for a lot of different reasons. And we're going to talk about why in just a minute. But what we're going to see here with Isaiah and, and on, a lot of times just with the way the prophets talk is they help restore a proper perspective. They help our distorted, messed up perspective that says my thumb is bigger than the tree that's out there, right? Whatever the tree may be or whatever the thumb may be in your life that's, that's distorting it, the prophets and God's word help speak into that and help restore a proper perspective on things. And so we're going to go at Isaiah 40 like this. I'm going to ask three questions. As we often do, we ask questions of the text and then see what God says in his word. But we're going to ask like this. First, how do we correct our perspective? And we'll talk about some of the reasons we get off, but how do we correct it? How do we get it in the right uh, frame of mind? How do we see it correctly? Because it's so easy in our sinful fallenness, our smallness to be overwhelmed by the things in front of us and let those things distort our perspective. So we'll, we'll ask that first. But then as we start to answer that, part of the answer is how big our God is. And then that brings up a whole new problem, which is how in the world do we approach a God like that? That's the second question, which Isaiah also answers. And then the third thing is we're going to take those two together and look at how does that transform us? How does that change us? How does that help us to have a healthy perspective on what God's doing and how he's working? So with that in mind, if you if you want to take the Bible, that's the Pew Bible. If you need a Bible and you want to follow along, it looks like this. And this Bible, we're on page 387. 387 is the one if you want to follow along with that. That's what I'll actually be reading from. And so. We're going to start just in Isaiah, and I want us to start with with this idea of how do we correct this perspective. And we're going to start right here with such a foundational couple of verses that are so important for us to think about. And that's Isaiah 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. And it says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so when we start to ask that question of how do we correct our perspective and how we're seeing things and the way we get off the answer, the place that we have to start is that our intellect is finite and it's sinful And it's broken and oftentimes it's very self-centered and self-absorbed. So we need something outside of us to come and stand over and above and talk into our lives and tell us. And what Isaiah 40 verses 6 through 8 is telling us is that's God's word. We need God's word to stand over and above us and speak into our lives and tell us where our perspective is off. It's just like I was saying, if I'm standing over here and I'm telling you, looks to me like my thumb is bigger than the tree. I need something outside of me that's over there, maybe that has a better perspective, say, uh, it's not even close. It's not even close. And that's what God's word does for us when we we let it stand over and above us. I love the way it's said here and when it talks about uh, the way it just uh, the words that I say, it's very poetic passage and the the words that that God inspires and uses that that people we are like grass. Right. That God's breath comes on us and we are gone and we're here one day and we're gone the next. Or James talks about us being merely like a vapor in the New Testament, that our life is just a millisecond on the scope of eternity. And here we are, just this little breath, this little speck. But God's word is eternal. And there's that comparison there, that God's word is eternal and we're finite. And you you hold those 
in, in together and you start to think about letting God's word, which is eternal, stand over and above us, which is just a speck of time. I can prove that to you if you want to think about it for just a second. Here we are, a room full of people coming together and we're looking at the words God inspired Isaiah to write 2,700 years ago. 2,700 years ago, this was written down. And so here we are looking at it and what it teaches us and what it tells us. And where was anybody, anybody here 2,700 years ago? Right? Not even close. Right? We could round up and say we've got a couple that are almost 90 in here. But that doesn't even compare. We're not even, we're not even in the ballpark. That how God's word is eternal and it, it lasts forever. And, and if the Lord doesn't return in, in the next however long, there'll be people here 2,700 years from now still looking at Isaiah 40, going to it and seeing what it teaches. Because God's word doesn't fade. It doesn't go away. It's eternal. And so the first thing we say when we talk about how do we correct our perspective is we let God's word come to bear on us. We let, us, let it speak into our lives. We don't stand over and above it. We let it correct us. And so when we think about that, I want to think about, well, what does it say? What does it tell us that helps correct our perspective? Because there's some things here that are really great that help us even in correcting our messed up perspective. I want you to think for a minute, what is it in your life that distorts your perspective? There's all kinds of things. Uh, maybe stress. Maybe your job, maybe what's going on with your family, whatever it may be. Uh, for me, sometimes if I, if I dwell on it, it can be the world in general. What's going on in our world, nations and uh, economy, world economy. You start reading all that stuff and it's like, oh, this is, this is really kind of rough when you start to look at it. Um, I, always, I always go to in my mind, I've heard this said before, you know, we, our answer to everything is, well, the economy's bad or the global economy, we've got to get it growing again. Well, we live on a finite planet with finite resources. And somehow the answer is always we've got to get it growing again. Sometime that's going to be a problem somewhere in there. And if I dwell on that for too, too long, I start to think about it. That's kind of scary. You start to think about, well, how does that work and how do those go together? And so maybe whatever it is for you, that's something that I think sometimes gets right in front of our face as we start to read the news or, or we see what's going on and it starts to distort our perspective. Well, then God's word comes to speak. On even that, even the nations, look at verses 15 and 16 and 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Or verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. And so does that mean that God doesn't care at all about nations or people? No, that's not, that's not what it's saying. That's not telling us that he just doesn't care about any of it. But what it is saying is that God's plans are not ultimately frustrated by any nation or any ruler or any egomaniacal dictator somewhere in the Middle East. God doesn't go, oh, no, what am I going to do now because he's doing this? Right? It's not that God's standing there waiting with bated breath. Oh, what will happen? See, God is sovereign over all of that. And he knows exactly what's happening and what's going on. And his plans are not ultimately frustrated by any government. See, what will happen is we're in election year this year and we'll get to a point where we're, we're going to have an election. And if the polls are right, about half the country will be really upset if our president is reelected. And about half the country will be really excited if a new president is elected, depending on where you are. That's, that's what the polls are kind of saying. And what will happen is half will be crushed. Oh, no. What do we do now? This guy is the president. 
or this guy is still the president, whatever it will be. Well, just think for just a second. Hopefully, you know this, but God knows who's going to win. He's got it under control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Now, the other side of that, though, is that God is sovereign, but yet he allows us to make choices and there's real consequences for our choices. So hear hear me on this. Both sides of that. God is sovereign and whatever happens, he will be sovereign and he will be in complete control. That doesn't mean you check out and don't care. Because although he's sovereign and we don't know exactly how this all works together, he gives us real choices with real consequences and he holds us accountable for them. So that doesn't mean we go, oh, well, he's sovereign. I don't care. No, it means you care and you step up and you and you speak God's truth and his word. But at the same time, knowing all along, he is completely sovereign over all of it. And so just when we start to think about the things that get us upset, maybe it's the nations. And then we read God's word and it says, no, he's sovereign over all of it. Nations rise and fall and he's over every single bit of it. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. He goes even deeper than that in Isaiah 40. If you look at uh, verse 12, it says he measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, the waters of the earth. He measured them in the hollows of his hand. That's, that's a pretty neat picture when you think about it. Or it says he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and he weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance. Uh, if you've ever seen a really beautiful, incredible mountain range. And then think about God weighing them in his scales and setting them out. And it gives us this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and the greatness and vastness of God. The greatness of the creator that these pictures of he sets these things into place and he's over all of them. Or you look at verse 22 and I think this is my favorite of this passage. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. In the way that I get up in the morning and open the curtains in my breakfast room. That's the way that God created the heavens. He just did his hands and they were there. And so when we think about the things that we let crowd into our life and we go, oh no, how could this work out or how could this be? And then Isaiah comes and says, well, this is the God who created the heavens like you open a curtain. Right? The, the vastness, how big God is and how wonderful he is. Or look at verse uh, 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirits of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So who who can counsel God? Who can tell God, hey, this isn't quite right. Who can say to God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be or or who can stand over and above him. And see, the problem is we often do that in our arrogance. We go, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It can't work out. This can't work together for good. Or we take it even further. Our arrogance is, is so great. Uh, I think the best example I could think of is I was just thinking about today. There's a new atheism today. That's what they call it, new atheism. And it's very, uh, they, they basically evangelize. They go and they tell people that, Everything doesn't matter and it came from nothing and you shouldn't really care, which I've never understood why you go and tell people that. But uh, but they do and they say that. And part of their reasoning as they go into it is they try to explain away everything. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And when we start to do things like that, we become so arrogant. It's like ourselves become the thumb. My my intellect, how smart I am, becomes the thing that blocks out everything else. And what happens is uh, they become fools. And that's, that's not my words. That's Paul's words in Romans 1. He says it that way. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We worship our own intellect and the way I see things and the way I put it together, and that distorts our perspective. I become the ultimate authority in all things, and it leads to all sorts of problems. And what happens is the reasoning goes, well, everything's here by an accident, and we can't really trust anything that we know because it all got here by random accident, and so it kind of cancels everything out. Um, I was reading the other day, 90% of the world, 95% in the United States actually, are deists, or deism. Some sort, we would be as Christians part of deism. Deism means that we believe in a God, that we believe in a God. 90% of the world believes in a God. And so evolutionary uh, naturalists or an atheist will say, well, that's because over time uh, that, that helped people survive being paranoid, thinking there's something out there, help them survive better. And it doesn't really mean it's true. It's just something left over from evolution. That's their answer. They explain away why we think there's... Now, now the Bible says it's written on our hearts that God puts us in us. So we'd have a different reason for that as a Christian. But as a, a new atheist or someone who's a naturalistic person, that that's all there is. That's where they come. But the problem is what, what ends up being and what they end up saying is... That because of that, their reason, through their reason, they've, they've explained away everything. But there's a problem with that. What they're saying is you can't trust your reason on anything because we got here by accident. So you can't trust that you think there's a God. Because that's just from evolution over time and that's why it's in you. But the problem is, if you take that to its logical conclusion all the way to the end, you can't trust your hypothesis on how we got here. You understand that? We can't trust how why we think there's no God, because we can't really trust our mind anyway. Because if we can't trust our mind in one area, that there's a God, or beauty matters, or there's meaning to life, or whatever it may be, we can't trust our cognitive abilities in any area. And so what happens is you get to the end of this thinking all the way through that what they're saying is, well, we've proven God doesn't exist, and he's not really there, and they become so obsessed with their own mind and their own theories and their own intellect that the thumb is right in front of them and it's their own mind. And what happens is now they're saying, there's not even a tree over there. It's just this. All there is is this. And I can prove it because look right here. And so what happens is it's self-defeating if you take it all the way out. But it's a huge problem. And we do it in all areas. I make light of that partly because you will hear that often. Science has proven that God doesn't exist. But there's huge holes in that. And that's partly why I bring it up. Or maybe you're struggling with that right now, and so I ask you just to do this, to think critically about those beliefs, as critically as, as, as those beliefs as you do about faith. Because what happens is there's huge holes there. Well, how, how do we even know that we can even trust our thoughts? Well, we don't know if we, if we take that to its very end. And so, as I'm coming to the end here, this first part, how do we correct our thinking? We let God be God. We let our God be as big as he is. As it says in, uh, right here in Isaiah 40, you behold our God and how big he is. Right? Because what happens is when we behold our God, I'm looking out and behind the tree as I get closer to who he is, suddenly I can't block it out anymore. Right? If I'm way back here, I can block out the tree, but as I get closer and closer, it starts to peek out around the side. And so the way our perspective begins to be corrective is we get closer to who he is and what he's doing, and how big he is, and it starts to dwarf all our problems, right? The things like, oh no, nations, 
Oh, no. How will this work out? Well, then we see how big God, God is sovereign over all nations. And suddenly it takes our problem of the nations and it makes them where they really are, which is very small compared to our God that we serve. It changes our perspective as we get closer to him. But then that that leads us to the next part. Well, but how do we approach a God like that? Because the closer we get to God and the more that we see him as he is, the bigger he is, the smaller our problems become. But then we've got this God that is so big. How in the world do we approach a God like that? Right? Because we can we can look at this and say he looks down on the earth and he sees the people as as grasshoppers. And you can say, well, God doesn't care about a grasshopper. He doesn't care about this, but he's bigger than that. And so how do we approach a God like that? That's the second part. And I want you to look at verses one and two with me for just a second. And the context here, just so we're clear, is we're getting through Isaiah one, chapter one through thirty nine. It's, it's a pretty harsh book. There's a lot of correcting and rebuke. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 40 and there's this wonderful, beautiful picture of what God's doing and how he's working and uh, the promises that are to come. And and he says this in verses one and two of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so what we get is this picture of we've got this great, big, huge God that that is over all nations and spreads the stars with his like a curtain and all these things. But then we also have this forgiving, loving God that says, speak comfort and forgiveness because I'm here and I and I I want to take her iniquity and tell her that it's all pardoned as he's talking to Israel. And he's saying, I'm still at work here and I'm still intimately involved and I'm still uh, wanting to have this relationship. And so what we start to see unfold here, even in Isaiah 40, is the same thing we've been looking at all the way through our series from, from Genesis on. Right? Genesis 3, we have the first promise that God's going to send a Savior. We see it again in Genesis 12 with Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Again, the promise of a Savior. We looked just a couple weeks ago with David, the covenant to David, the promise to David. Through your line, David, I'm going to have a king that will be eternal over all things and he will always be on the throne. And so it's like uh, a puzzle that we're putting together as we go. We're putting pieces in and as we're making it, we're seeing it a little more clearly. Now, now the important thing for us as believers is we need to, as we come to this and we look at it, we need to have the big idea, big picture so that we see what these pieces mean. Does that make sense? For example, if I'm putting a puzzle together uh, with with my boys and we pull the puzzle out, we need the box that shows us what the picture is so we can identify the pieces that go there. Without that, it's much harder. See, the people in Isaiah's day are like the ones without the box trying to put it together and they're hearing shadows and things. And, OK, this kind of goes together. But we as believers today can look back on all of it and see how these pieces all fit together because we know the end. And so that brings us, and I say all that, to bring us to verses 3, 4, and 5 and what he tells us. How do we approach a God like this? Well, we start to get this picture in verses 3, 4, and 5, and it says, A voice cries, and in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, part of this, when we read it, is culturally conditioned to a degree. And we miss some of this 
if we don't know Isaiah's day a little bit, what they're talking about. Because what he's saying is he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When a king went out to visit his people, they literally built highways so he could get to the places to go see the people. That's how they prepared for the king to come. They would make uh, a road and then he'd go out and they'd say, so they'd fix it up so that he had a nice way to travel to go see the people. And so Isaiah's using that imagery here and he's saying, our God is coming, our king is coming, so make paths straight, make the way ready. But it's not just an ordinary king coming, it's something much greater. Because look at what he says in verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And what he's saying is not only are they going to just smooth the dirt out for the road, when this king comes all things that are messed up, the valleys and the rough places and all those things are going to be done away with. It's not just an ordinary king coming. And so what you're starting to get is another picture that points us to the Messiah, the Savior that's coming. It's right here in Isaiah 40. It's pointing us ultimately to Jesus. And when we have the big picture of all of it, of the New Testament, we know from this passage right here in Matthew chapter 3 that this is talking exactly about Jesus. Right? Because Matthew takes the same passage and he applies it to John the Baptist. As John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he's talking and he's making the way ready for them to accept and to see that the Savior is now here, Matthew applies this exact passage to John the Baptist. He's making the path straight and getting ready to point to the king that is coming to set all things right. And so right here in Isaiah, what we have is this beautiful picture of Jesus coming and what he's going to do and the way he's going to restore things and bring them together and all of that together. And so as I ask the question, how do we approach a God that is that big? We approach a God that is that big by him coming into the story to bring us back to him. And that's the whole heart of the gospel. And that's what you see here in verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And again, if you have the whole picture of the whole New Testament and the Old Testament, the whole big picture together, when you think about the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, I think of uh, Colossians 1, that Jesus is the picture of the invisible God. Or Hebrews 1, that he is the exact imprint of his very nature. Or John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we see God in human flesh. So when it says the glory shall be revealed, it's pointing us to Jesus and what he's going to come and do. And that's how we can approach a God. But then there's one other part I want you to see here on how we approach that God. And this is so important for all of us and seeing clearly how we get our perspective right. How we don't let things crowd those out. Look at verse 2 when he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When we first read that, you can say, she's received double for all her sins. It makes it sound like, well... Israel was rebellious and God punished her and now she's gotten double what she deserves and now I'll let her back. But that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's telling us. It's actually saying that her iniquity has been pardoned and now God is giving her double what she ever deserved. You see the difference? It's not that she paid for it. God pardoned her iniquity. He took those things and now he's giving her way more than she deserved, which is the same for all of us. 
When the king comes, when Jesus comes, that's the way it works. And, and what I mean by that is double in that there's this. Oftentimes we get the first part. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a sermon on this and talked about how in the church, oftentimes we get the first part of the blessing of Jesus coming. And that is the gospel. Jesus comes and he lives the life that we should have lived and he dies the death that we deserved and he gives us eternal life. He takes our sins and he pardons our iniquity. You're now made new and you're good with God and now you get to go free. You get out of jail free card. But what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his famous sermon is that's usually where we stop. We miss the second part of the blessing. And the second part of the blessing, Paul says it perfectly in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Right? So Jesus became sin for us who are sinners. He knew no sin because he was perfect and he lived the perfect life, but he took our sin as sinners. So that's the first part of the blessing. He took all our sin on himself. But the second part that we often forget is the second half of that verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happens, the second part of the blessing, the double blessing, paying us back double, is not only does I take our sin and restore us and allow us to have eternal life. He gives us, he credits us, Jesus' perfect life, and that's all he sees now. We miss that so often. We go, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm saved by faith. God loves me and, and I'll get into heaven and he'll let me pass. But now I've got to get to work really hard so that he continues to love me. We often work that way. And what happens is when we work that way, we start to work really hard and then we mess up. And then those sins start to come in our life and they start to distort our focus. And, oh, no, God doesn't love me the way he loved me before. Or, oh, no, I've got to do this or I've got to make this up. And, and we start to go. But that's not the way it works. He gives you the second part. He imputes Christ's righteousness. That is, he counts it to you. you he sees you as Jesus. He gives you all of that stuff. And so he loves you deeply and fully and completely the moment that you put your faith in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't try hard to please him and obey him and see all those things. But we're not saved by that. We're not earning his love. You've already got his love. You've already got it completely and totally. And we so need to hold on to that and hold fast to that so that we see the picture of how we approach a God like that. We approach a God like that because of what he's done for us, what he's given to us. That he now sees you as he say, sees Jesus. He gives it completely to you. And we have to come out of that place because otherwise we slip into trying to earn his love and then we're right back to trying to do it by works. And that's not how it works. That's not the way we approach a God that big. There's nothing we can do that he can't do for himself. We have to approach him in that way. So how does that, that leads us to the third part, how does that completely transform us? How does that change our perspective? How does that come to bear? And it transforms us like this, that, that a God that is that big, that spreads the heavens like the curtain. A God that is, that is so big that nations are as nothing to him, loves you intimately and dearly and cares enough to come and do what you can't do for you. And so what that does is it rearranges our perspective in the way that we're loved in the way that things that come into our life, that they don't even compare to the greatness of our God. And so it gives us this very uh, wonderful 
and we're going to end here this morning, the last three verses of this passage. As we start to get this, this is what happens. It starts to transform us. We start to be renewed. And look at what it says there at the very end. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. So when we see those first two and we start to get it, then it leads us to this renewal. But there's one little key here, and this is the last part that we're going to talk about this morning, is that he says there you're going to get this renewal and all these things, but you have to wait for the Lord. And the Bible always talks about that. It says it over and over. That that phrase is throughout Scripture over and over and over. Wait on the Lord. We say that a lot. I'm praying for you. And then we say, well, we'll wait on the Lord. You know, he'll answer you. you know, we always say those kind of things. So what exactly does that mean? How do we wait on the Lord? How, do, how exactly do we do that? And I just want to tell you a couple things as we end today on what that means to wait on the Lord. The first part is it means we obey him. A God that is that big, that is so huge, that as big as, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 40, a God that loves us that much, that is in control and sovereign over all things, you do not invite that God into your life to be your assistant. You don't bring him in and go, ah, you can be my consultant. And when things get really bad, I might pick up the Bible and I'll search for something here or there. No, it doesn't work that way. You obey him completely and totally. You trust a God that is that big that his perspective is he sees it clearly and you don't. If I come in to contact with God says this and I think that, I'm going to go with God. I think my thumb is bigger than that tree. And God says, no, it's not. And I go, oh, it sure looks like it to me, but okay. I'm going to obey. That's the first part that we wait on the Lord. We obey. We obey what he says. But then the second part, and this is one of the wonderful parts of of how big he is and how much he loves us. The second part is it means you relax. You let go of these things, the anxiety as you get closer to God. And and by the way, these go hand in hand as you obey and you spend time in his word and you let him speak into where you are and correct your thinking. And you're going, no, I think my thumb's bigger. Well, what's happening is you're getting closer and closer to who he is. You're getting closer to that tree. And then as you get closer to him, then all of a sudden, and I'll, I'll just as a visual picture, as you're leaving today, hold your thumb up to that tree as you walk by it and just think. As you get really close to it, what that looks like, it's the same as true as we get closer to God and we see him and we obey him and we follow him. It's ridiculous. The things that we let crowd crowd out our vision and distort our perspective. And so you relax. You begin to go. God's a lot bigger than whatever the problem is, whatever it is in your life. He's so much bigger and that flows out of obeying him and it comes out of that. But then the last part is this. Uh, the very last part I want us to think about of those three is that uh, we, we obey and then we relax. But then the last part is we hope. We put our faith and our confidence in what he's going to do. Hope biblically means a confidence, confident assurance in what is to come. That we are sure that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. We are sure that when Isaiah prophesies, he's coming And he's going to make everything that's messed up right, that he's going to do it. And he's going to do it completely. 
And so we relax and we, and we hope in that and we put our confidence, assurance in what's to come. And that leads us to the very end of, of that verse. When we wait on the Lord, he shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. I heard uh, Dick Lucas, he's a great uh, preacher. He was a British preacher who's excellent in, in preaching on this. Actually, I was reading, he had written it, but he was talking about this passage and he said that almost seems anticlimactic because it starts with soaring and then running and then walking. Why isn't it the other way around? Shouldn't it be walk and then run and then soar? Doesn't it make more sense? And what Dick Lucas points out is he says, no, but, but the point is, we get it wrong, the point is just to walk. That in this life, we're not always going to soar. And we're not always going to run and we're going to have frustrations. But when we wait on the Lord and we trust in him, we can always walk. We can always put one foot in front of the other and we're walking towards him. And the great thing, the the wonderful hope is that's now. That's that's the point now that we can put one foot in front of the other. But when he returns, we're going to soar. He's going to take all of it together. And it's going to be only that. There's going to be no more just one foot in front of the other. It's going to be all perfect and made right. And so when we see those things and we dwell on those things, it corrects our perspective. And it shows us that our thumb's not bigger than the other things. That God is so much bigger than anything else that we have going on. And He loves us so much and He cares so much. And He's going to do what He says He's going to do. And that's, that's our hope, that we know that that's the case. So let us be a people that rests in our God that is so big and so mighty and so wonderful and so loving. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for promises after promises after promises. We thank you for the way that you show us clearly over and over the way you love us, the way that you are working, the way that you do these things. And we we thank you for that. We pray that uh, we will respond in the way that uh, you would have for us, that we would rest in your promises and that we would love you and care for you each step of the way. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.